Thank you very much, Eddie. I hate to correct you, Eddie. <laughs> but the Lenten Bible studies were started by J.R. Thompson. And I think he was the first. Jeanette says I'm wrong. <laughs> so if she says that, I must be wrong. <laughs> Carolyn, did you start it before JR? JR, Yeah, that's what I thought. It was a team project. And then after JR's untimely death, I took it over for the next two years. And that's how I got associated with it. Now, I do have an out kind of an outline of what I'm going to say and I don't know are there enough for everybody? Wonderful. One of the problems I face is several students from Fuller have given studies and they have done so well that many of you have complimented me on the Fuller students as if somehow I led to their excellence. And I contributed very little. And now my students, uh, some of them, uh, can listen to their old teacher. And so it's kind of an awesome experience. Now the text was given to me by Eddie. I didn't choose it. However, it comes from Hebrews which is one of my favorite texts in the New Testament. And one of the reasons it's a favorite, I'll get into a little bit, but it's such a complex, uh, glorious and difficult, and glorious and difficult book that it is simply compelling to me personally. Now the text tonight is at the top of your sheet. I'd like to read it. For by one sacrifice, he, Jesus Christ, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Now, before we approach the text directly, I think it is important to grasp a few things about the whole document we call Hebrews. Now the title, we call it To the Hebrews. Now that title wasn't originally there. That was added in the late second century. And it was added by somebody, we don't know who did it, in the church who read Hebrews and figured out that this was written to Jewish people Hebrew people, and so let's call it to the Hebrews. And that title has stuck ever since, uh, to the Hebrews. Now, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. Now, some of you might have Bibles that say at the top of the first page, 
the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. One thing we can be absolutely certain about is that Paul did not write it. (laughs) Now, how do we know that? Well, there are a couple of reasons. First of all, all the letters we have from Paul start with the word Paul. (laughs) And since this doesn't, that raises considerable suspicion. Second, and pardon me for saying this, but it is uh, an important fact that you can't tell in English. But in Greek, the style of Hebrews is radically different than all the letters of Paul. Radically different. And finally, we know that the early church didn't know who wrote Hebrews. They debated it, and it is the church father, Origen, who is famous for having said, as to who wrote Hebrews, only God knows. And then he followed it up with this sentence, which never gets quoted. But if saying Paul wrote it will make the church read it, let's say Paul wrote it. (laughs) And so the name of Paul became associated with Hebrews. The best guess ever made as to who the author is was made by Martin Luther, in my opinion. He guessed it was Apollos. And the reason is, is Apollos came from Alexandria, Egypt. And the concepts, the philosophical underpinnings of Hebrews and the language of Hebrews leads most scholars to think it was probably written by someone from Alexandria. So that's why Luther guessed Apollos. I think it's still the best guess. In 1900, a very famous German scholar by the name of Adolf von Harnack who wrote over 2,400 books, plus editing all kinds of journals and so on. Harnack made a guess in 1900 that Priscilla wrote it. And the reason why the author's name isn't there is because if Priscilla's name had been there, the church might not have liked it because it was by a woman. Well, in the next 10 years after Harnack propounded that, I know of only five other scholars who agreed with him. So the suggestion wasn't popular. But in the last 20 or 30 years, partly due to the feminist movement, the Priscilla suggestion has been revived. And there are some scholars today, um, mostly certain feminist scholars, who think this is probably a pretty good idea. I think it's most unlikely I'd love to have Priscilla be the author, but I don't think that's likely. So I reject that wonderful, wonderful suggestion. Because we don't know the author, we don't really know when it was written. And again, we have very few external criteria. So for whatever it's worth, virtually every New Testament scholar in existence thinks it was written sometime between A.D. 60 and A.D. 80. So that's good enough. I think it was probably written closer to 80 than to 60. But that's not too relevant to our concerns. Now, it's not a letter. We call it a letter, but it's not. 
doesn't begin like a letter. And actually, the author tells us what it is. In chapter 13, verse 22, he says it's a word of exhortation, which in our language would be a sermon. This is a sermon. Maybe not quite as long as Steve's, but, you know. (laughs) Oh, it's longer than one of Steve's. But it was a sermon. And it wouldn't, I don't know how long it would take to read Hebrews out loud, but I would guess it would take about 45 minutes or a little less. You can read the whole book of Revelation out loud because I do that in class with my students. And that takes 64 minutes, and Hebrews is shorter than Revelation. So it's a sermon. I assume written to a church or group of churches near Rome. There's a phrase near the end of the letter that says, those from Italy send you their greetings. And most people understand that to mean there are people from Italy who have migrated somewhere, presumably Alexandria, Egypt. And those Italians are joining with the author and sending their greetings back to some churches near Rome. Now, all of these things are debatable, except that Paul didn't write it. But otherwise, I think I've given you a a pretty good picture of how to fix Hebrews. Now, the fundamental purpose of Hebrews is a word of exhortation for believers to remain faithful in the face of persecution. Let let me read a couple of passages that are listed here. Hebrews 10, 32. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light. We would say after you became believers. When you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Now this is the most concrete evidence we have that this church had suffered persecution. And then in chapter 12, verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So from that we conclude that they had been persecuted, insulted, put in prison, had property confiscated, but none of them had been put to death. And one of the things we learn in chapter 10 that because of the fear of persecution, they had stopped meeting together. Because they thought if they were together in a room like we are now, the local officials might come and arrest them or persecute them or disperse their meeting. And the book of Hebrews is this exhortation to say, in spite of what you have suffered, in spite of the threat that's at your door, don't abandon following Christ. Don't deny the faith. And as you know, Hebrews plies that argument in many ways. 
including arguing that Israel didn't heed the warning, and look what happened to them. And so Hebrews presses that, and it does it in the context of one of the most dramatic Christological documents of the New Testament. Now, Christological, if you don't know that word, is simply a fancy adjective to describe theological teaching about Jesus Christ. And high Christology, what scholars call high Christology, is about the deity of Christ. And low Christology is not a term that's used, but the other side of that coin is to talk about the humanity of Jesus. Now, Hebrews is outstanding for having both some of the highest Christology in the whole New Testament, and at the same time, some of the strongest emphasis on the humanity of Jesus. So you may remember the beginning of Hebrews. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Now that is, in essence, a declaration that the Son is equal in every way to the Father. And that's what we call high Christology. Very strong affirmation. But then Hebrews has these wonderful passages about the humanity of Jesus. And I've given you some references, and I won't read all of them. But verse 10 of chapter 2, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. So Jesus is not ashamed to call the family brothers and sisters. Since the children have flesh and blood, he, Jesus, too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he has to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then uh, in chapter 4, uh, verses 14 and following, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we possess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, 
yet he did not sin. And Hebrews 5, 7, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. Now you couldn't have a stronger emphasis on the humanity of Jesus. He became just like us. He suffered. He was tempted. Everything just as we are. And because of that, he was then equipped to identify with us, or as the writer is saying to the Hebrews, Jesus can identify with you and your sufferings. He went down the same path you're going down. He knows exactly what it's like. And he became perfect. And the word perfect in Hebrews means complete. He became perfect to obtain eternal salvation. I often ask my students, this is one of my exam type questions. What is the real purpose of Hebrews? And students who are haven't been listening <laughs> always write down Christology because they probably heard it if they grew up in the church all their lives from many people Hebrews is about Christology well it's true Hebrews is about Christology but that's just the framework what Hebrews is about is don't reject your faith. It's really a word of ex- exhortation set in a Christological context. So the argument of our passage, this wonderful passage Eddie gave me, is that sins are forgiven, and it references Jeremiah 31. You may know that text. Because Jesus Christ has made one sacrifice which produces believers who are perfect forever. Now, the believer's forgiveness, which is the last line of this text in a way, believer's forgiveness is set in the context of these two affirmations. One sacrifice perfect forever, which are two of the deepest themes throughout Hebrews. First of all, let's talk about one sacrifice. Hebrews emphasizes, as I assume most of you know, the reality that Jesus Christ, as a priest in the order of Melchizedek, or as I love to say, He was in the Melchizedekian order. I love the word Melchizedekian. It really sounds pretentious. Jesus Christ has made one sacrifice for sins, which is in contrast to the Levitical priests who made repeated sacrifices for sins. 
Now I assume you do remember well the Levitical priests in your reading of the Old Testament and the history of Israel who made sacrifices many times and especially annually. Now Melchizedek is mentioned briefly in Genesis and hardly a thing is said about him. He kind of appears from nowhere and disappears. And But you do know that Abraham paid a tithe to him. And he was a priest. And so this became, in Jewish speculation, already in Psalm 110, and then there's a whole document from the Dead Sea Scrolls that we, the name of it is El, 11Q Melchizedek. That means it was found in Cave 11 at Qumran, and it's about Melchizedek. And in there it says that Melchizedek proclaims liberty to the captives. He fulfills Isaiah. And it even calls Melchizedek God in this Qumran text. And he has the authority to forgive sins. And so somehow, in the thinking of the author of Hebrews, he clicks and says, Jesus is a Melchizedekian priest. That, that makes Jesus, in a sense, have the prerogatives of God. It makes him a special priest, different than the Levites. And so Jesus can make one sacrifice And his sacrifice is such that no other sacrifice is ever needed. That's the glory of Good Friday. That's the glory of Jesus' sacrifice. Hebrews 7.27 says that Jesus Christ sacrificed once for all when he offered himself. And this is supported in chapter 8 where there's a complete quotation of Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. And the theme of one sacrifice is reiterated at least five other times. 912, 926, 928, 1010, 1012. Maybe we ought to read at least one or two of those. 912. He did not enter by means of blood of goats, blood of goats and calves. He entered by the most holy place once for all by his own blood. Or verse 26, chapter 9. Otherwise Christ would have had to suffer many times, but he has appeared once for all. Or verse 28. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away sins. Or 10.10. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Or 10.12. This priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin. So we understand that clearly, right? That is not too difficult to grasp. I think we know that. And that is one of the deepest themes of Hebrews. That Jesus Christ 
made one sacrifice for sins. Now, point five is more difficult to grasp. The implication of Jesus' one sacrifice for Hebrews is that the forgiveness or salvation thereby achieved is forever. Or it's perfect forever in the words of our text. Thus, if Jesus made one sacrifice, how many salvations are there? One salvation. Perfect forever. The eternal nature of salvation is also stressed many times in Hebrews, like 5, 9. Once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who believe. Or 7.25. Therefore he is able to save completely. I'm reading from the TNIV, a literal translation I'd like better here. Therefore he is able to save eternally those who come to God. And then uh, 9... Chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 12 again. He made one sacrifice, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Verse 15, chapter 9. Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now it's on the basis of texts like this and others in the New Testament that the theology developed in the course of the history of the church especially enshrined in what we often call Reformed theology that salvation is eternal or what is sometimes called the perseverance of the saints once saved, always saved you've heard that phrase perhaps And most of the Baptist tradition, not all of it, but most of it, follows Reformed theology and has throughout its history. So there's this strong affirmation, which we've just seen in these texts, of eternal salvation. And yet it raises some questions because point six in Hebrews there are two passages there are really three at least but two main passages chapter six verses four to six and chapter ten verse twenty six which seem to say explicitly that you can lose your salvation chapter six It is impossible for those, impossible, for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age and have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. Or 1026 It says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, 
No sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Well, these passages have bothered people in the Reformed tradition because it sounds like you can lose this unlosable salvation. On the other hand, the stream in church history that's sort of the counter to that we call the Armenian stream, named after Armenian stream, named after a scholar named Arminius, and that characterizes sort of a Wesleyan tradition, the Holiness tradition, Pentecostal tradition, certain other traditions that you can you can lose your salvation. Now, what's true in most of those traditions is you can lose it over and over again. Whereas Hebrews says, you know, you lose it, that's it. Now, I think that we can go a long way towards solving this problem by understanding the logic, put that in quotes, of Hebrews. If there is only one sacrifice, then there can be only one salvation. And so, if you reject that salvation, Jesus can't die again. There's been only one sacrifice. That's it. So if you turn against the Son of God, then you have, in a sense, forfeited the eternal salvation. Because there is no more sacrifice for sin. Now, before you get too excited, please understand that I think the logic of Hebrews helps us understand why that's the structure. That's why Hebrews can write what Hebrews does in chapter 6 and chapter 10. Because it's one sacrifice, one salvation. Now, this bothered the early church so much that Hebrews would not have made it into the canon Except that Origen said, let's tell everybody Paul wrote it. (laughs) Because the church, by the time the canon was really being shaped, was bothered by this rather strict approach of Hebrews that if you turn against the Son of God, that's it. And the church wanted to have additional times of repentance. And so there are various documents in the early church that soften Hebrews and say, well, if you turn against the Son of God and you're truly sorry, you know, you can come back. And where this reached the pinnacle in the early church was in the days of severe persecution by the third century when some Christians were arrested by Roman officials and they were asked, are you a Christian? And if they said yes, they'd be killed. So they said no. And saved their lives. Other Christians said yes and were killed. When the persecution was over, the people who had said no wanted to come back to church. And the church was stuck with an enormous problem. Do we let them back in? And that's the origin of penance. 
Because the church said, well, we can't just say, oh, sure, come on back. So the church set up various rules, like if you come to worship every Sunday for the next three years, we'll know you mean to repent, and then we'll let you back in. And ever since, the church has struggled with what hurdles should someone go through if they've sinned to come back in. So that by in our day, if you sin and a church won't let you back in, you just go a few blocks away and some other church will let you in. And that whole concept has kind of evaporated. But you understand how this process went. So when we look at Hebrews, and it says that you forfeit your salvation, if you turn against the Son of God, then you've lost it. I think Hebrews means that as a sincere warning. It says, don't play with this. If you turn your back on Christ, you have done something that's very serious. Now, Hebrews in all the passages, goes on to say, of course I know you won't do that. In his word of exhortation, he says, I know you would never go down that path. I expect better things of you. So like a good pastor, preacher, he's not preaching condemnation to them. He's giving them an exhortation of a way to recover and keep their faith. But it's a sincere warning. Now, theologically, it's not my task tonight to give an ultimate solution. And if I could, I'd probably be on the cover of Time magazine. But I can't. But I, here's the closest I can come. It won't mean much to you for me to say this, but there was a very famous Reformed theologian who wrote in the middle of the 20th century by the name of John Murray. And he wrote a little book called Redemption. Um, I can't remember the subtitle. But that book proved a turning point in my life. I read that when I was a seminary student and was struggling with these questions. And as a good Reformed theologian, he said, you can't lose your faith. But how do you know if you had saving faith? You never know until you get to the end of the road and stand before God. Now the way I apply that is if you're living a life having made a Christian confession but now you've turned your back on God you can never plead once saved, always saved. The only thing you can plead is God's mercy for restoration. Because in the end, perfect salvation is what Christ has bought. The forgiveness of our sins yields an eternal salvation. That's the beauty of it. But it does put some pressure on us to live in accordance 
with eternal salvation. So the glory of this text, in accordance with the prophecy of Jeremiah, is that Jesus Christ made once for all the absolutely perfect sacrifice. And Hebrews, of course, goes on to say, he didn't take it into some earthly tent. Jesus Christ took the sacrifice up into the real Holy of Holies. That is the throne room of God. Uh, of which, Hebrews says, the earthly tent was a mere shadow. That's Platonic philosophy. But Jesus took the sacrifice up into the real Holy of Holies. That once for all perfect sacrifice that we celebrate on Good Friday. And with that once for all salvation, in accordance with the prophecy of Jeremiah, we receive the forgiveness of sins, which is eternal salvation. And that is worthy of our deepest gratitude and the deepest, most faithful discipleship we can render. Let us pray. Gracious God, we are very grateful for the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ and for the forgiveness of sins which gives us eternal salvation. May we this week especially thank you over and over again for this gift which is truly beyond our full comprehension. In the name of our loving Lord Jesus Christ, who paid the price once for all, we pray. Amen.